I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Practicing the Way, Preaching the Gospel. The proclamation of the good news about Jesus has been made in all sorts of contexts. Churches, hospitals, classrooms, prisons, grocery stores, and the list goes on and on. But one context in particular has been deeply impactful throughout the life of the church. It finds its roots in the life of Jesus, the reason he came, and the way he went about doing what he came to do. And uh, hey, we started a new series last week uh, and, and a new practice called uh, Preaching the Gospel, uh, which for most people is a really loaded thing to talk about, right? Um, Preaching the gospel are often referred to as evangelism. For a lot of people, evangelism conjures up images of people holding picket signs about death and hell and fire for some reason. Uh, Lots of fire on picket signs. Or it conjures up people knocking on your door with smiles that aren't real. Um, They're just like plastered on a face. And they want to talk to you about like uh, Jehovah or Joseph Smith or something. Or... You know, it's considered, this thing, evangelism, um, is considered something that, like, other people do, like a Billy Graham, uh, you know, who draw crowds to them to tell people about the gospel. Or, you know, maybe for you it, it feels more like it's the spread of Western culture into non-Western cultures under the guise of evangelism, you know, judging, condemning, and ultimately attempting to overthrow those cultures because they aren't Western and thus can't be Christian. So we have to make them Western before we make them Christian. All that to say, we actually have a ton of work to undo popular misconceptions that have tainted and twisted this practice started by Jesus 2,000 years ago. So last week, Josh went over what we actually mean by the gospel based on what Jesus preached and proclaimed as the gospel, as the good news. If we're preaching the gospel as a practice, what is the gospel? It's a great question to start with. It's important. So if you missed it, go back and listen to the teaching. So in this series, we're going to be looking at the scriptures, the teachings, the words, and life of Jesus when it comes to preaching the gospel and how that worked itself out in the early church and how we use all of that to shape our paradigm of preaching the gospel. So are you guys ready? Because we're going for it. Okay, cool. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. That is Luke chapter 15, the third book of the New Testament, Luke's biography of Jesus. If you're sitting in your seat tonight ready to take notes, cool. Um, But if you're ready for me to give you the three things you should or should not say to people far from God, you know, um, this teaching is not that. Uh, And we're never going to do that teaching here. Um, What tonight is about is creating a paradigm about the context of where and when preaching the gospel happened in Jesus' life and where it's happened throughout church history. No evangelistic formulas, no script to memorize, no, you know, like checklist to accomplish the goal of, you know, proselytizing a friend or something like that. Just follow your rabbi Jesus. That's what tonight is kind of about. So read with me starting in in verse 1 in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So our familiarity with Jesus coupled with our distance from his context has kind of like domesticated um, him in our minds, um, at least to some extent. We typically read a story like this and think, oh man, look at Jesus just being so loving and kind to the people those nasty religious leaders were mean to. You know, um, uh, this, the scandal and confusion of Jesus' actions are, are a lot of times lost on us. So let's try to take a step closer to what Jesus eating with these people actually meant. So a meal in first century Palestine, as it still is generally today, functions as a relational marker. Eating with someone uh, was a sign of intimacy, friendship, even reconciliation or a stamp of agreement to a business relationship. It was a way people networked and a major method of positioning oneself in your community or town or trade. Eating with someone was about much, much more than nutrition or having a good time, or chit-chatting over some good tacos or something, uh, who you ate with mattered immensely. It reflected on you, and you on them. You were lifted up or you were tainted by the people that you ate with. So as we're reading a text like uh, Luke chapter 15, we read tax collectors and sinners, and, and often we think of them as victims who were picked on by the religious elite. You know, uh, they were bullied and shoved to the side by the big, bad religious leaders. Tax collectors were not lovable characters, though. Uh, They were often regarded as greedy opportunists who collaborated with Rome to extract heavy taxes on the mostly poverty-stricken population of Israel. Uh, And they often raised the tax rates even higher in order to funnel a good amount of money into their own pockets. They willingly became instruments of Roman oppression on a beleaguered ethnic minority, betraying their own communities and holding in contempt any solidarity they could have had with their fellow Jewish people against Rome. They were not first century versions of an IRS agent. They would have fit well with the Bernie Madoffs of the world, the super wealthy who take all the money they can by whatever means they can, no matter who it harms or what law it breaks. And then they live in an inconceivably lavish lifestyle. Tax collectors would have found some good company with those sorts of people. Now, sinners was a term that referred to people who flagrantly lived against the way of life laid out for Israel Israel in the Torah. They were the dregs of society, and worse yet, they were willingly and egregiously breaking covenant with Yahweh. Uh, Probably the most common group of sinners Jesus came uh, came into contact with uh, were prostitutes or sex workers in today's lingo. And far from the current push to legitimize sex work and to even celebrate it, prostitutes were seen as people who not only lived against God, but drew others into their sin. They were viewed as a corrosive agent in Jewish homes throughout the community, a threat to the very fabric and stability of the household and the larger community. And then a word on the Pharisees and the religious elite. Um, For all their issues and their hypocrisy, they were deeply devoted to promoting faithfulness to God's covenant. They didn't want greedy collaborators with Rome or prostitutes ravaging Jewish households. That's just not what they wanted. But Jesus 
ate with these people. And did you notice in Luke chapter 15, uh, they wanted to hear Jesus out. So turn, turn in uh, your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 19, just a few pages to the right, and let's read uh, a couple of stories about Jesus doing this in action. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. Okay. So there's this well-known story about Zacchaeus, the one that was made famous in Sunday school classes around the world, mainly because Zacchaeus was short and had to climb a tree, not because he was a greedy opportunist selling out his community in order to make himself filthy rich. That one is a bit harder to explain to kids and rhyme, so it's just easier to talk about him, you know, climbing a tree. So Luke chapter 19 Starting in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, which means he was really good at taking other people's money. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Wow, Jesus is a nice guy, right? And then the next verse says, all the people saw this and they were really encouraged by how nice Jesus is. Not quite. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter or grumble, grumble or complain. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. People aren't happy about this. You know, there goes Jesus eating with the guy who just ripped me off. This isn't a feel-good moment. This is frustrating for the crowds to see. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus is different. Jesus uh, came over to his house, and now Zacchaeus is the opposite. Instead of extreme greed, he's going to practice over-the-top generosity. And Jesus says, in essence, welcome to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus has one more thing to say in this story. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That sounds like typical Jesus. Um, you know, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But, but how did he seek and save the lost? So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. It's to the left. That's going to be a handful of pages to the left. Luke chapter 7. And look at verse 33 in Luke 7. For John the Baptist, a big-time prophet in Jesus' day, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon, as in there's something really off with this guy. Verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and in Luke's biography of Jesus, he highlights the fact that Jesus primarily did this through eating and drinking with those far from God. Not as much through sermons, not as much through miracles, eating and drinking. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, 
and Jesus came eating and drinking. One more story from Luke. Uh, Just look down at verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Notice this is a meal hosted by a Pharisee, one of the conservative religious elite of Jesus' day. Jesus doesn't only eat with tax collectors and sinners, but whoever invites him. And it's helpful for us to know that this would have most likely been a meal eaten with an open door so that those in the community could come. They probably wouldn't eat the meal, but they could at least come and listen to, uh, to this new teacher, uh, Jesus. So, uh, verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at, at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Again, this is a meal that's open to whoever is interested in coming, so it's not strange that this woman could be there, but notice that she leads a quote-unquote sinful life. More than likely, she was a sex worker, a prostitute. So keep reading in verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. It's an act uh, by this woman that's deeply moving and beautiful imagery that has carried down throughout church history. I know I've personally been impacted by that imagery. But in that moment, to those there at this, you know, dinner party, this probably would have been a moment where everyone freezes, eyes locked on this woman, the awkward tension rising, people looking from one to another with knowing looks, cringy, probably would have been the feeling in the room, except for Jesus. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Here's Simon, the host, who is having this up-and-coming rabbi Jesus for dinner. And remember, who you eat with rubs off on you. And Jesus has just tainted himself in Simon's eyes for allowing this woman to touch him. Now, the story goes on. Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness. Then he explains, Jesus Jesus explains to Simon how Simon had invited Jesus over and yet had practiced the bare minimum of hospitality. Whereas this woman, from what Jesus described as her great love, had shown her love through acts that honored Jesus. The woman becomes a picture of loving devotion to Jesus. Simon becomes a picture of stinginess. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The early church picked up on how Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's it's housed within the idea of hospitality. You know, the opening of your home to others, not not to raise your social status, but to follow Jesus' example. Paul commands it for his followers, um, or for Jesus' followers in Romans chapter 12. And I'll just look at it over on this thing. Um, Practice hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Practice hospitality, or another way you could uh, translate, translate that is pursue hospitality actively chase after it. 
or uh, Peter's letter to uh, the church spread in the Roman, throughout the Roman Empire. He just writes, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, which I love. Uh, so practice hospitality for your brothers and sisters in the church, not just those outside of the church, and don't complain about it, which is great because you know people were complaining about it, which is, you know, why he had to write that. No grumbling. Uh, hospitality is also one of the requirements for people who have spiritual responsibility and oversight and care for the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, now the overseer, that is a leader of a church, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. This isn't an optional kind of thing for followers of Jesus. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And, okay, forgive the lack of nuance on what I'm about to say, but um, it freaking worked. Uh, Christianity went from a ragtag group of maybe a few hundred people, mainly regarded as a tiny Jewish sect or maybe a secretive cult, to become the most prevalent religion in the Roman Empire within 300 years, and not without opposition. Cultural pressures to give up the way of Jesus for a more approved lifestyle within pagan Rome were common, as was outright persecution. Most often, this persecution was sporadic and localized to certain cities or regions of the empire, but estimates range from tens of thousands up to two million Christians being put to death within the first 300 years of the church. There was opposition to Christianity's spread. So with so much pressure against it, how, how did Christianity spread all over the Roman Empire? One of the primary ways was ordinary followers of Jesus practicing hospitality and having conversations with people in homes. Historian Michael Green writes of this practice, one of the most important methods of spreading the gospel in, in antiquity, read uh, the early church, was by the use of homes. Uh, this second century pagan philosopher, Celsus, complained of it. It was in the private houses that the wool workers, the cobblers, the laundry workers, and the yokels, whom he so profoundly despised, did their proselytizing. You know you're following Jesus well when a philosopher calls you a yokel. Christianity uh, spread from house to house as much as any other means of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It was by ordinary people in the church that propelled this, not uh, traveling evangelists or powerful Christian orators or Christian philosophers writing apologetics in response to cultural criticisms, though all of those things had, had, had their say. It was mainly by hospitality that the gospel spread through the Roman Empire. And hospitality was so ingrained in the culture of the early church that the practice launched the creation of these new things, um, you might have heard of them before, called hospitals, um, that welcomed anyone who was sick or hurt. Places of healing and care for people's bodies as a way to demonstrate God's love and care for them. And these hospitals were started by the church. A bishop of Caesarea named Basil was a prominent figure pushing these public hospitals to the point that within 100 years, uh, the Roman Empire went from having no hospitals to hospitals being commonplace and widely accessible throughout the eastern part of the Roman Empire in just 100 years based on just this one guy, Basil, really pushing it. So from Jesus 
eating and drinking with the lost, to Paul's command to pursue, pursue hospitality, to the, the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, and the beginnings of healthcare and hospitals. Hospitality has been ingrained in the story of the church for 2,000 years. But hospitality is, is fast becoming a dying practice, at least in the West. Now, uh, before I, I say why that is, let me say this. Uh, we tend to, you know, kind of pick on the Western church a lot here, and for good re reason. We're a part of it, so we can kind of critique our own, uh, and there is a lot to critique. But to balance it out, there's also a ton of good in the Western church as well. So let me share something generally positive. You guys down for that? And then we'll get to the critique part. Cool. Okay, so the Western church, particularly Pentecostals, have done incredibly important work in spreading the good news of Jesus in non-Western regions of the world. And in an increasingly detached way from colonialism or, or cultural imperialism. Think of it as a sort of repentance from the hand-holding that evangelism and colonialism had for hundreds of years. So, uh, 150 years ago, if a sociologist were to sketch a portrait of the average Christian, it would be a white Western European man in his 50s. Today, if a sociologist were to sketch the average Christian, it would be a black Nigerian woman in her 20s. Christianity has never been as global of a religion as it has been in the last 150 years, and that is largely because of the modern missionary movement that started in the West. However, the Western church, while largely responsible for making Christianity a global religion, it is quickly becoming the place where missionaries need to be sent. One of the reasons for this, I would argue, is the withering of the practice of hospitality. The hyper-individualism of our culture is something that has gutted the practice of hospitality and made it become mostly about entertainment or socializing or networking. And, you know, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, not at all, but they are also a far cry from Jesus eating and drinking in order, in order to seek and save the lost. The way we build homes and view them has changed to reflect this. If you, were, or if you are able to own a home, um, people used to invest heavily in their front porch and front yard as a space to inhabit. People would just hang out out front with their neighbors. Now, people invest in their backyards as spaces to spend time in more private, less accessible, accessible, and inviting to those around them. It's become a big reason why knowing more than your neighbor's names is becoming a rare reality. The home has become our personal retreat center, shutting out the world unless they have an invitation to enter. Uh, once inside these retreat centers, they're all about comfort and entertainment, however you define that, and this is normal for us. Nobody second-guesses this in our culture, necessarily. If a neighbor walked into your house unannounced, most people would have a problem with that. In cultures that are collectivistic, much more you know, focused on community or group than the individual, that's not necessarily the norm. Uh, doors are open. Neighbors wander in. Strangers that are passing by show up to birthday parties to share in the food and the celebration. 
if a stranger walked into your house, there's a good chance the cops would be called. And add to all of this, in this moment, as has you know, ebbed and flowed throughout the history of our culture and really all of humanity, uh, the, the hatred of, of enemies is kind of at a peak. At least it seems like that. You associate with only your in-group, with only the people who think like you, dress like you, look like you, and vote like you. Those who think differently than you must be ostracized, avoided, shamed, scoffed at. They must see that they are the problem. They are the villain. They are the enemy. If they would only repent and think like you, the world would be such a better place. Maybe even it would be completely fixed. And hatred, fear, anger, self-righteousness, all of that sells. They make people boatloads of money. In headlines and tweets and books and blogs and documentaries and shows, uh, this buffet of content is shoveled down our throats until we burst. And we wonder why we're racked with anxiety and depression and hopelessness. Why open your door to someone outside of your chosen circle of people who you agree with everything? You know, if you invited somebody new, that person might be one of them. They might be anti-vax, or they might be pro-abortion, or they might be Republican, or they might be Democrat. They might have uh, voted for Trump, or they might have voted for Biden. They need to be ignored and shunned to teach them a lesson. You know who that sounds like? The crowds grumbling that Jesus would eat with a tax collector. Sounds like a Pharisee shaking his head at Jesus for letting that sort of woman near him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and Jesus came eating and drinking. Now, there's a weird story in the Bible, and I say that knowing that there's actually a lot of weird stories in the Bible. But uh, anyway, there's this weird story at the end of Luke's biography of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're just going to read through it really fast. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. So this is all taking place after Jesus' death. And the, the resurrection has just happened, but nobody really knows or understands what exactly that means or what exactly has happened. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. On top of all of that, some of our women amazed us. They went to the the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Jesus said to them, 
how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, a.k.a. the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they, they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. When did these two disciples of Jesus finally recognize him? When they invited him in and sat down to eat with him. When Jesus broke bread with them. They had followed Jesus before his execution. They knew things about him. They had heard about this mysterious resurrection. Jesus even took seven miles to explain the Hebrew scriptures to them. But they only recognized Jesus when they invited him in and ate with them. Hospitality, um, you know, inviting people into your space, your, your life, and welcoming them warmly. Um, hospitality is a unique space to not only preach the gospel, but to experience Jesus and to see him, to recognize him, to understand him in a different way, in a new way. Hospitality can be the space where facts about Jesus and why he's good news become an experienced reality as you sit and talk with someone, where things you know and, and you hear all the time, and maybe you've even taken them for granted, they take on a new significance as other people hear and experience these things. But before we go on, a warning, and please listen to me, especially Anyone here tonight who are, you know, idealistic and you're bouncing at the edge of your seat, ready to invite dozens of strangers into your house, and also for those of you who struggle to say no to people. I love both groups of you. Hospitality can wreck you. And I don't mean that in a churchy, inspiring kind of way. I mean you can really hurt yourself, your family, and the people you're trying to be hospitable to. Way to be a killjoy, right? Jesus said no to people. Do you understand that? Jesus spent deliberate time by himself, not allowing others to be with him. Jesus at times purposefully and probably more often than you realize looked to avoid the crowds that wanted him to feed them or heal them or teach them in order to just have time with his disciples. If you think this idea of hospitality is a command that obligates you to always allow people to come into your house or to come into your life. No, this is not that. There are times for hospitality and there are times for solitude and there are times for just you and those close to you like your friends or your spouse or your kids. And I know I'm probably speaking to the minority here, and again, a minority that I love. I love you guys and appreciate you deeply, but I've seen marriages crumble, kids emotionally neglected, anxiety and depression and, and, and bitterness. I've seen clinical burnout, not just fatigue, clinical burnout. 
And within the American church, guess who, are, who some of the worst offenders are of this? Pastors. Churches end because pastors can't say no. So I have to remind myself of all of this as much as I want to remind you about all of this. And now, I have wrung myself dry of all my pessimism for the week. Now let me bring out my optimistic side one more time. Hospitality will wreck you. Did you see that coming? <laughs> like three of you did? That was bad. I'm sorry. Uh, but now I mean it in like the good way, um, the, the churchy way. <laughs> Hospitality will confront your selfishness, your self-centeredness, uh, your hatred of enemies. It will offend that part of you that has to control things. It will inter interrupt your slow drip of entertainment that doles your pain. You'll hear offensive things. Things will get broken. Things will get dirty. Things will get borrowed and never returned. Uh, the ways in which you fall short loving those around you will be exposed. They will be confronted and that's good for us. That's good for our formation. That's good for us to become more like Jesus. Jesus uses those sorts of things to speak to us, to wake us up. You open up your homes. You open up your lives to one another. You are forced to work through the messiness of relationships. Yeah, you've had practice handling, you know, awkward moments and conversations. That's true if you're in a Van City community. You've had to work through um, difficult times together as a Van City community. And you get to apply that to hospitality. So if you're in your Van City community, you're, you're way ahead of the curve. And you've experienced Jesus working in often ordinary ways, but sometimes deeply profound ways as you sit together with people. Now, uh, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I don't have a house or a living situation where it's realistic for me to invite people over or to host people. And let me tell you, hospitality is much, much more than inviting people over a meal. It's also a general disposition of warmth, invitation, and welcome. You can practice hospitality without having a space to host a meal. You practice hospitality wherever you go. You can be an inviting, warm, welcoming person while grabbing coffee, at the gym, at work, at school, when you're picking up your kids. Uh, so I worked at a grocery store for 11 and a half years, and I made it. I'm here. <laughs> I made it. And when I worked at this grocery store, I didn't often have people I worked with over for dinner at my house. That just wasn't a thing that people were into. They would have thought it was a really weird thing for me, like creepy, if I was inviting them over to my house. Um, but I, I did have a ton of conversations with people about their lives, their hurts, their hopes in the break room at work. I had 15 minutes on a break or 30 minutes on my lunch to sit and listen and ask questions and for them to ask me questions. It took intentionality. Um, it took me fighting against my own struggles and desires. I often woke up at 3.30 in the morning for work, which is like you're essentially waking up what feels like yesterday 
to go to work the next, it's just, it's awful waking up that early. Um, if you have to, uh, I feel for you. 3.30 in the morning, so tired. And when I hit my lunch break, more often than not, all I wanted to do was just go take a nap in my car. <laughs> but I decided I'd be available on my lunch break to chat with anyone who was willing. And I would do my best to be interested in that person, their story, and what they were willing to share with me, however mundane it, it may have seemed, and to treat them with dignity and respect. And over time, uh, people at my work began wanting to talk with me, taking their breaks or lunches at the same time as mine so that they could talk with me. And, and please, please, please listen to me. It, is, it was not because I'm anywhere near the ballpark of cool or interesting or smart, far from it, you all know me. Um, my coworkers and managers wanted to talk to me because I was just willing to listen to whatever they wanted to share. And that grocery store break room became a sort of sacred space to me, a, a, a place where people shared about their drug abuse, depression, rage, abuse, infidelity, betrayal, fear, their divorce, their miscarriage, and also their dreams and their hopes and their longings for meaning and purpose and where I had the humbling privilege of sharing about Jesus who really is good news for those who are lost. You do not need a house to practice hospitality. You can practice hospitality wherever you're at. Now, you may be thinking after all that, Got it, sounds good, I'm tracking with you, but what do I actually say to share the good news? Because, you're right, this, uh, you know, practice in this series is about preaching the gospel, you know, using your words. Uh, but I actually can't give you an answer to what words you should use to share the good news, at least not some sort of, again, script to follow or like fill in the blank, this is what you say when somebody asks you this sort of thing. So instead... Let me answer your question with my own questions. First of all, ask yourself the question, why is Jesus good news for you? What has he done in your life? What is he doing in your life right now? Why is he good news for you? Answer that question first. Then, before you say anything to this person, listen really carefully. Listen really well. Be respectful ask questions to better understand their experience and their perspective. And then, before you say anything, again, ask this question, why is Jesus good news for this person? After you've heard them, after you hear their story, why is Jesus good news for this person? But remember, please, please don't skip this. Listen to them. No rush, no hurry, no panic. Jesus was never in a hurry. That's not the pace of the Spirit. Just take time to listen really well to this person. Then, then, if you think it could be an appropriate time or even maybe feel a prompting from the Spirit, share with them. Don't preach. I know the title is Preaching the Gospel. It's, you know, a bigger word than what we consider a monologue share with them. Share with them why Jesus is good news and invite them into life with Jesus. That life with Jesus is accessible. That Jesus is accessible. 
an open-handed, humble invitation, an invitation that if rejected is communicated in such a way that this person knows that you'll still be with them. They can say, no thanks, and you won't reject them. That the invitation and the hospitality will graciously continue to be extended to them. If you're uh, practicing hospitality, listening to the person, asking good questions, trying to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit only to evangelize them, you're not actually being hospitable. You're being manipulative. Maybe unintentionally so, but, but you are. You're using nice gestures in order for the people to say yes to Jesus. One way to tell if this is you, if you share the gospel with someone and they say no thanks and soon after you lose interest in the person, you move on to the next person and then the next person and then the next person. Instead, learn to love the person you're being hospitable to. If you get the opportunity to share how Jesus is good news and invite them into the kingdom, it's not out of, out of an obligation to evangelize people, but out of love for the person. You respect them. You value them. You enjoy them for who they are. And because of these things, of course, you want to share Jesus with them. He's really important to you. Jesus is really important to you. He is good news for you, and he'd be good news for this person you're learning to love if they're willing to give him a shot. So, of course, you'd want to share about Jesus with them. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and Jesus came eating and drinking. Let's follow him and see what happens. Let's pray. Go ahead and just kind of get yourself comfortable in your seat. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.